Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my good friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheem Presents. And uh, we are continuing our theme on world peace. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, we still live in these trying times. And um, I know many of you have been appreciating these uh, re-releases of these old classic recordings uh, from the 1940s. And uh, they, they really are stirring our hearts and um, understanding that sin hasn't changed in thousands of years and salvation hasn't changed in thousands of years and that we need to still go to the Lord to uh, be saved. And um, I think Fulton Sheen uh, constantly reminds us that we need to have a conversion, we need to repent of our sin, and then we'll find peace. And so, uh, again, this is uh, a message that I think is hard sometimes to accept, but uh, it's the way we have to do it. We have to, again, be sorry for our sins and, uh, again, uh, make reparation and turn back to God. And so uh, today, Fulton Sheen will be giving a talk entitled, uh, The Domestic Conditions of World Peace. And so, uh, what we have to do here at home uh, to find peace and he'll also, of course, um, I want to say make us smile with a more lighter presentation during the second half of the broadcast, where he'll be giving a reflection titled, Wasting Your Life. And I'm sure we've heard that before, people saying, you guys are wasting your life, um, praying the rosary and having devotions, and uh, yet we've, we've heard that many times, but we're actually not wasting our life, we're uh, living our life and living it to the fullest. And uh, I always think of Fulton Sheen's uh, television show. The title of the show was Life is Worth Living because uh, God truly has a plan for each and every one of us. And so uh, we need to accept that and embrace it. And uh, again, uh, don't be afraid of the naysayers who may criticize us and, and say that we're wasting our life, but uh, we're not. We're not. And so, again, a very full program today. And so, may I invite you, as I always do, to just uh, sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection titled Domestic Conditions of World Peace. Please enjoy. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen now addresses the Catholic Hour audience. The title of Monsignor Sheen's talk is The Domestic Conditions of World Peace. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, we are publishing a booklet entitled Friends, which we will send free to anyone for the asking. Its purpose is to enlist Jews and Protestants and Catholics alike 
in a crusade for the preservation of the moral law and the social order, as well as for the elimination of bigotry, anti-Semitism, and anti-Christianity. Today we speak of the basic moral principle of domestic society, namely, the family is the natural unit of society and the right of education belongs primarily to the parents, not to the state. The family is, in the natural order, the only divine institution in the world. God did not found the American Chamber of Commerce or the CIO or the National League, but in making man and woman who find their natural complement in one another and whose children are the incarnation of their mutual love, God did found the family. And since the family is the natural unit of society and precedes the state in nature and in time, it follows that the parents and not the state have the primary and normal right of education. The teacher only supplements but never surplants either the right or the duty of the parents. The function of the state when it receives this delegation is merely to protect and to foster, but never to absorb either the individual or the family into itself or to substitute itself for them. Are parents realizing their responsibility along these lines? Unfortunately, too many parents today shift their responsibility to the, to the school and assume that by doing so, they have fulfilled their parental obligations. Have they forgotten that the education of their children is their concern six years before it becomes the concern of the school? The child has been given to them by God the child is as so much putty in their hands and how the little ones will be molded and formed is the primary responsibility of the home. There is such a thing in the providence of God as mothercraft and fathercraft. But there never was a time when these noble professions were in such danger of being lost. An indication of the breakdown of parental authority is the present tendency of mothers who outside of cases of necessity work in war plants to the utter neglect and detriment of their children. In Los Angeles, for example, a social worker counted 45 infants locked in cars in a single parking lot while their mothers were at work in war plants. The root of this trouble is in the home. And those who talk about more nurseries, better playgrounds, curfews, grade A milk, and more dance halls are perhaps diminishing the effect. But they are not removing the cause. Behind every delinquent child is a delinquent parent. Behind every broken youth is a broken home. 
there are problem children only because there are problem parents. It behooves those mothers, therefore, who are doing defense work to the utter neglect of their children, not to flatter themselves that they are aiding the war effort. The price for working in a war plant is too high when it costs the integrity and the decency of the next generation. What kind of peace will we have if during this war these mothers turn out future mothers with a sordid background of disease and crime? Our soldiers at the front are entitled to better wives when they return, or else their fighting will have been in vain. This war's greatest casualty so far is the American home. I always tell young couples whenever I witness their marriage that to make a home, their marriage must have three qualities. It must be unbreakable, it must be fruitful, and it must also be sacrificial. First, marriage is a permanent bond until death. There are only two words in the vocabulary of love. You and always. You because love is unique. Always because love is enduring. No one ever said I will love you for two years and six months. The modern rubbish about sex confuses feeling with love and an organic reaction with an act of will and falsely believes that when the thrill is gone, marriage is ended. Forgetful that in marriage, as in running a race, there is such a thing as a second wind. What the modern calls the thrill is only the choke that starts the motor. And most people never live together long enough to enjoy the thrill of driving. The thrill is the frosting on the cake. And the frosting is not the cake. And the moral law says you may not have the frosting unless you eat the cake. One of the great values of a vow is that it keeps couples together during the shock of the first cold plunge so that later on they might enjoy the swim. Love is life's courier and must not linger only in the rivers of rapture, but must launch out into the deeper and more authentic waters where the simple happiness of being together mirrors the mystery of eternity and reflects the harmonies of the triune God. And then secondly, marriage by its very nature is destined to bear fruit all love is creative, even God's. All love tends to an incarnation, even God's. The spark of love caught from the flames of heaven's altars was not given to scorch the flesh, but to solder life. 
The only reason life ever surrenders itself to another life is to meet the challenge of death and to conquer individual impotence by filling up the other's lacking measure in the birth of their mutual love. As the marriage of earth and tree is messianic to new life, so man and woman must not make a covenant with death, but in obedience to nature's laws, must pay back life's loan with life, and not with death. In vain will they who break the lute of God's designs ever hope to snare the music. Humanity is the quarry, and the husband and wife the sculptors, and every child they beget a living stone to be fitted and compacted into the temple, the cornerstone of which is God. And finally, marriage can prosper only in terms of sacrifice. True love is sacrificial. Even God's. That is why courtship is characterized by gift-giving, a surrender of what one has. In marriage, this sacrificial love should deepen by a surrender of what one is. Because too many measure their love for another by the pleasure which the other gives, they are in reality not in love, but in the swamps of selfishness. Hence, to preserve the family, the greatest sorrow of each member should be to be outdone by the cherished rival in the least advantage of self-giving. In order to preserve the American home, may every Jew and Protestant and Catholic who listens to me spend an hour a day in prayer. And may the Catholics spend it with our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. And then, too, would to heaven that Catholics would revive that beautiful custom of the family rosary every night. An Australian priest tells how his mother remembered that the last time she saw one of her boys who was lost in the war was the night they said the rosary together. They have brought the news, my darling, that I've waited for so long. Faith, twas little news they brought me. Every story, every song that I've heard since you enlisted seemed to bear the one refrain till the whole world used to tell me that you'd never come again. Yara, what's the use complaining when the world is all amiss, when the hoping and the striving ever come to dust like this? Still, I'm thankful... Oh, I'm thankful for one golden memory that the last time spent together was to say the rosary. Don't you remember, boy? We said it in my room there beyond, where I have the little altar where your early prayers you conned. By the statue that I cherish of the Holy Mother fair with the blue cloak round her shoulders and her white hands crossed in prayer. They were singing in the parlor, them that came to say goodbye. And they sang their gay songs to me. Oh, I know the reason why.
They're always kind in trouble in this big, warm-hearted land. Ah, but their way wasn't my way, and they mightn't understand. So I lit the little candles, and I beckoned you away, and you came. God bless you for it, boy, the parting prayer to say. I, the parting rosary, darling, I can see you kneeling there with your big, broad shoulders bending and your hands joined on the chair and your man's voice like an organ rolling out its soul apart. Oh, tonight, boy, in my dreaming, it's droning in my heart. Yes, we said it with the music strumming ragtime songs throughout. Just our two selves together, answering t'other turnabout. Tis a queer, queer world, Alana. When the storm can work its stress on the strong limb, while the withered limb is left in loneliness. Oh, I'm thanking God, my boy, though the aching's in my breast, was he who took you from me, darling, and he knoweth what is best. And as holy Mother Mary... With her baby on her knee, sure, she lost him in his manhood, for he died at 33. There's a numbing in my heart, boy, like a cold, cold hand it grips. Oh, I'm thankful that we parted with a rosary on your lips. It has ever been my refuge has been my hope and stay, been my hymn of sweet thanksgiving for what good there came my way. It has been my only comfort when the heart was sick and sore, when the bad days past the counting flung their troubles round my door. I was taught it by my mother. I and when we crossed the sea, for to seek the gold we never found, the old man there... And me, sure, he stood six feet tall and higher then, and coal black was his hair. Oh, you'd never know twas him at all, that old bent man in there. We said it in the slab hut, strong and clear in flood and drought, just our two selves there together, answering up and giving out. We have said it by the cradle, we've said it by the cot, when the babes the angels brought us made us happy in our lot, when the house was full of children and the pride of living glowed. Oh, we said it till the neighbors heard us passing on the road. But you've gone and left me lonely. One by one, my doves, ye flew. One by one the circles dwindled Till the rosaries said by two Said by two old husky voices Old and weak and wearing out Just our two old selves together Answering t'other turnabout 
Sure, it won't be long, Alana, till the troubled sea is calm and the beads drop from my fingers and they bind them on my arm. You would tease me with the trimmings in the dear dead days. Of old, there's another trimming now, my boy, every time the rosary's said. But there won't be many rosaries for the singing's in my ears and the Holy Mother's beckoning. I can see her through my tears. These old feet have done their journey. Better leave them rest and then they will bring me to the hillside ere the green months come again. Sure, I've, I'll tread the house of glory where the soul is free from harm. And you'll know tis me, Alana, by the rosary on my arm. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my good friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection about world peace. And again, I think it's uh, one thing I uh, know that uh, Archbishop Sheen, he never misses a beat when he invites us to pray the rosary. Of course, he's inviting us to pray the holy hour uh, each day and to uh, spend an hour uh, each day with uh, our blessed Lord in the uh, blessed sacrament, if possible. But if not, we can always make our holy hour at home uh, in the quiet of uh, that little spot somewhere in your home or your apartment where you can uh, just, again, uh, be with the Lord and uh, open up the scriptures or one of your favorite uh, book of saints or meditations and truly just ponder uh, the goodness of God. And so uh, that call to prayer, and of course you can see how Fulton Sheen uh, gave that beautiful story uh, of the um, rosary at the end. And so, uh, again, very poetic, but still you could tell he was saying, you know, the rosary is important, and it's um, what many people hang on to. It's their lifeline, uh, per se, to uh, God and, of course, the Blessed Mother. And uh, we need that hope, and the rosary provides a sense of hope for so many of us. And so, uh, again, I thank you for all the rosaries you've been saying for the success of this apostolate. Uh, We've been doing our best to share uh, some of the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen, and I tell you, we're reaching a worldwide audience. Um, Of course, uh, Radio Maria USA and Radio Maria Canada have been featuring our show, and um, again, it's one of these things where I think... um, Uh, The family is growing, and uh, there is talk of uh, this program coming on many other Radio Maria stations all over the world. So please pray for our reach that we can do that. Uh, Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, Fulton Sheen is going to have a little bit of a a lighter conversation here, and he's going to talk about uh, wasting our life. And uh, sometimes I've, I've asked myself that question, am I wasting my time? Uh, doing this or wasting my life, but uh, I know it's time well spent, and it's uh, been a labor of love to uh, produce these shows and to be a part of the Radio Maria family. And so uh, I will let uh, Archbishop Sheen now teach us as he gives this reflection titled, Wasting Your Life, and he gave this uh, at a family retreat a number of years ago. 
Please enjoy. This little boy came home from Sunday school or catechism class, and his father said to him, "What did you learn today?" Oh, he said, "I learned how Moses defeated the Egyptians. How did he do it? Well, the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites, and Moses called the airfield." And the airfield flew in some engineers, and they built some pontoon bridges over the sea. And the Jews crossed over the pontoon bridges. Then another fleet of planes came, and they bombed the pontoon bridges as the Israelites—I mean, the Egyptians—were on them, and they were all killed. Father said, "Is that what they told you?" No, he said, "It isn't." But if I told you what they really said, you wouldn't believe it. And for those that are 39, I must tell them a story too. I was once talking on prosperity and adversity, and I used the example of flowers. I said some flowers prosper only in sunshine, while others seem to thrive only in the shade, like fuchsias. And afterwards, some woman came to me, and she said, "That was a wonderful sermon." First time in my life I ever knew what was wrong with my fuchsias. <laughs> Now I'm going to talk to you today about working harder, studying harder, living harder, being more wasteful of energy, being more thoughtful of others. And I'm going to begin by telling you that I was once a victim of a roast. You probably have seen some roasts on television in which someone is made almost the sacrificial lamb, and everyone berates him. Well, I was roasted by the Friars' Club, and these actors put on a, a drama on the stage. And in this drama, I had just gone to the diocese of Rochester. And the vicar general was in the room, my secretary, and several priests who had responsible posts in the diocese. And the Holy Father walks in, and he looked exactly like the Holy Father, the one who was playing that part. And he went over and he talked to the vicar general, whispered to the chancellor, whispered to the other priests. He never spoke to me once. And then he left, and I said to them, "I said, what did he say?" He says, "Work a hard." <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to tell you: to work a hard, because really most of us live below the energy, the level of our energy, and in order to be happy. We have to do more. Now we can do more spiritually and every other way than we are doing, as is proven by hypnotism. There were some men hypnotized and told that their strength 
was greater than it was before. And do you know that they lifted weights 40% more than they'd ever lifted before they were hypnotized? They just got a new idea in their minds. And then another group of men were hypnotized and, and told that they, or no, the same group. And they were told that they were not as strong as they usually are. And the weights they lifted were 40 pounds less, 40% less. So you see how important it is to have in the mind an idea to do all that you can. To work to the limit of your, your ability. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion. There was a poet of World War I by the name of Studdard Kennedy who gave us a poem in which he compared our Lord coming to Calvary and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. And this is what he wrote. And when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street... Then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. In other words, he found the cruelty of Calvary more acceptable than our indifference. I'm going to plead with you, therefore, not to be bored in life. The reason we're bored is because we don't love anything. When you girls get older, you're engaged, the man that you're engaged to will do anything for you. Why? Because he loves you. There was a Chicago florist that advertised, does your husband still send you flowers? And they had to stop. The husband protested. Well, there was a reason for not sending flowers after they were married. That's very obvious. But when you're in love, you'll do anything. And you'll find that the young man will do anything for you because he loves. And so will you. You'll wear the kind of clothes he wants. If he likes pink, you'll wear pink. And you won't find it a bit boring. But in order to drive home this lesson, I'm going to take stories out of the Bible. And the first story is to induce you to learn to 
waste yourself, give yourself to others. We go back to King David. He lived a thousand years before Christ. And King David was in a battle against the Philistines, always the enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. And the battlefront took him to his own home village of Bethlehem. Now, when we get older, we sometimes have yearnings for tastes and visions and experiences when we were young. And so when David saw the town of Bethlehem, he said to the soldiers, Oh, he said, if I could only taste again the waters from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And the soldiers said, all right, we will get you the water. We will drive through the lines. And they came back with water. And David held up the vessel of water and poured it out onto the ground. He said, I am not worthy to drink the water that was purchased at such a sacrifice. He wasted it. Wasted it in the sense that if he drank it, he would not now be remembered, and I would not be telling you that story. When we save certain things for ourselves, we spoil them. When we, for example, save our flesh, Use it only for our own pleasure. Then it becomes lust. We save money. It becomes avarice. We save knowledge. And not use it to train others. It turns into pride. And so David poured out the water as a lesson that sometimes we have to waste the things of life in order to be remembered. Now another story. With the same moral. And here we come to the time of our blessed Lord. He was invited into the house of Simon, the Pharisee. The Pharisees were very self-righteous people. And while he was at dinner with the apostles, a woman comes in the door. Now you must remember that in those days it was very easy to come into a banquet room. Anyone could walk into an adjoining house, stand along the wall, you would not eat, but you could listen to the conversation. It was therefore not very unusual that a woman should come in to overhear the conversation. But she brought a blush to Simon's cheek. He would not have minded it if anyone else had been there. But the Lord... What would he think of it? The woman was a sinner. And Simon kept saying within himself, If he only knew what kind of a woman she is. I wonder how he knew. <laughs> and the woman comes closely to the feet of our Lord. 
My young people, you must remember that in those days, people did not sit at table. They leaned at table, as if we leaned here almost on the floor. And you rested your head on your left hand, and then you ate with your right hand from table. That's a custom that sometimes I wish would come back. So the woman comes to the feet of our Lord, and she has some perfume about her neck. In those days, precious perfume was generally carried around the neck. And she stands above the feet of our Lord and lets fall upon those sandaled harbingers of peace a few tears. Like the first warm drops of a summer rain. And then she was ashamed that she had wet his feet with tears and she wiped them away with her hair. In those days, all women of shame had the hair down. And so it was easy for her with her long hair down at the side to wipe the feet of our blessed Lord. Then she took from about her neck this small vessel of perfume. It was a custom too among the Jews when they went to a funeral to break this perfume bottle over the corpse and then even to drop the broken bottle into the coffin. Now, as she stands above our Lord's feet, she does not do what you and I would do. You and I would pour it out gently, drop by drop, as if to indicate by the slowness of our giving the generosity of our gift. Not those who really love. She just broke the vessel, gave everything. And the house was filled with perfume, says the gospel. So remember, my dear people, this was no smell number five. (laughs) And Judas was there. Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he said, why wasn't this saved and given to the poor? But our blessed Lord spoke in favor of the woman. He said, this woman has done this for my burial. Because this incident took place ten days before our Lord was crucified. And the gospel writers have kept this story in in the gospel, yes, in order that we might again learn to waste, give, break, surrender, As our Lord put it in another occasion, he says, walk the second mile. What did he mean by that, walk the second mile? Well, because very often in those days was when mail was delivered. Suppose they did it here. When mail was delivered, the postman would say, I listen, I've got a heavy load today. Here, you take half these letters. And he had the authority to make you walk the extra mile to deliver mail. And that's what our Lord meant. If anyone, if the postman forces you to walk one mile, walk another. And imagine he also said, if anyone takes your coat, 
Give him your cloak too. Unlimited giving. We would put this in the language of being generous. That bell rings very often, doesn't it? I have a dim feeling that I'm warned up here. So when anyone asks you to do things, be prepared to do more. Why, for example, do we get tired? Well, we think we are, we are tired because we have a certain limit of energy. Like we have certain amount of money in the bank. And as that money is spent or as that energy is used, then we have no more, we're exhausted. No, that's not it always. Energy is renewed if we love. As sanctity and holiness declines, energy declines. Can you imagine, for example, Mother Teresa ever being tired? Here this woman who weighs about 90 pounds, who has dragged 25,000 bodies off the streets of Calcutta and converted 15,000 of them. She never seems to be tired because she gets new strength because she's broken the vessel, poured out her life as David poured out the water. I hope, therefore, that I can impress you, not to be selfish, but always to please neighbor, even when they seemingly demand too much. We might even sometimes do the foolish things. And this is the last story that I will tell you about doing foolish things. And you might learn from this that if your faith is very strong, you can do wonders. The scene I'm to describe was on the Lake of Galilee. Our blessed Lord had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and the people were excited about it, and they thought, oh, here's a great political king. He can feed the hungry. And they tried to make him a king. And our blessed Lord fled into the mountains alone. Well, his disciples were caught up in this enthusiasm. They liked it. And our Lord did not want them to be burnt with the idea that his kingdom was political. So he said, get into the boat. Go over to the other side of the lake. Get away from these people. This is not the nature of my kingdom. So here's our Lord on a mountaintop. The apostles rowing past midnight in the lake. A storm comes up. They are frightened. Our Lord is praying for them and watching them during the storm. We sometimes think in our trials and difficulties, economic, physical, moral, that the Lord has no concern. That's what they thought, too. But he was watching for the opportune moment. And as the apostles were about to despair, our Lord is seen walking on the water toward them. And they were frightened. 
They said, it's a ghost. And our Lord said, be not afraid. It is I. Whenever I use that verse, I'm always reminded of a story that was told of Pope Leo XIII. Someone asked to paint his portrait, and it was not very well done. But it was brought to Pope Leo, and he had to sign it. But he signed it in Latin, Noli timere ego sum. Do not fear, it is I. <laughs> Our Lord, therefore, is telling his apostles, Now, do not fear, it is I. Here we come to a great act of faith. Peter loves our Lord. And I'm telling you that if you love, you will go on doing things, not stop. And Peter loved our Lord. He wanted to be with him. He couldn't wait until he came to the boat. And he said, bid me come on the waters to you. Imagine that. Peter loved our Lord so much that he thought, well, I can walk on water. Now, can you imagine what must have happened in that boat at the moment that Peter lifts his foot about to step into the water? What do you think happened? His brother Andrew must have said, Peter, listen, you're always an idiot. Thomas must have said, what are you trying to do, join a circus? Judas said, how much money are you getting for this? And on and on they ridiculed, get back, you idiot, get back. But he walked. He walked on the waters. And why did he walk? Was it foolish? No, our Lord had said, come, come. Believe the impossible and you can do the incredible. Or believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. Believe the things that are almost impossible. And if you've got faith, they will come true. Our Lord has said, come, and Peter walked on the water. But then he began to sink. Why did he sink? Because Peter knew how to swim. Someday when you learn the gospel better, I will ask you the question, how do you know Peter could swim? As I might ask you the question, who could run faster in a race, Peter or John? Did you know that's in the gospel? When you get it back to school and you're studying scripture, I hope, I hope, I hope, in your catechism, Find out who can run faster, Peter or John. I'm not going to tell you. But the answer is in the Bible. And so here, our Lord has said to Peter, come and he walked, but now he sinks. Peter could swim because we know that on the Sunday after Easter, Peter swam 400 yards. That's in the gospel, too. Why did he sink if he could swim? 
The gospel tells us the reason. He took his eyes off the Lord. He began to take account of the winds. He said, oh, nature's against me. Or in our language today, in our sociological world, Peter began to take account of sociological surveys. And he sank. He took his eyes off the Lord. And so the Lord then took hold of his hand and said, Oh, man of little faith, why don't you believe? And then Peter was taken into the boat and our Lord took them to shore. So if you have faith, the impossible things can be done. I'll tell you a story about football that was told me by Coach Paterno of Penn State. Those of you who don't like football, close your ears and God have mercy on you. <laughs> coach Paterno is the coach of Penn State and a few years ago his team was playing the University of Kansas. Now Coach Paterno has an old mother an Italian mother full of faith knows absolutely nothing about football. But she has two sons who coach football. One coaching at Penn State and the other coaching the Merchant Marine in Connecticut. The score of the football game, 50 seconds before the end of the game, was Kansas 14, Penn State 7. The other son who coached in Connecticut was with the mother and he said to his mother, Mom, it's all finished. Joe has lost. And she said, no. I'll go in the bathroom and pray. I don't know why she went into the bathroom to pray, but at any rate, that's the story. She went into the bathroom. She said, I'll go in the bathroom and pray. Now this, now picture this good good old lady going into the bathroom to pray to the good Lord. What happens now in the remaining seconds? Penn State threw a touchdown and the score, boys, what was the score now with the touchdown? 14 to what? No. 13, right. 14 to 13. To make it 14, what do they have to do? Pick a field goal. Would there be any other way of making extra points? Forward? Yes, or run through the line. Yes, there will be another way. Well, they decided not to kick the field goal because that would mean a tie, 14 to 14. So they tried a forward to get behind the goal line, and that would count two points and make the score 15 to 14. They tried it, and they missed but Kansas was offside, so they had to try it over again. And the next time they made it, well, her son screamed. And he shouted out, Mom, they won! And she came out and she said, I told you, I told you. <laughs> so you see, you believe, believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. 
And it would seem as if Coach Joe Paterno's wisdom had won the game, but actually it was the mother. <laughs> now my time is up. Oh, yes. Listen, my good, my good people, it's always better for you to say, I wished he had talked longer than to have you say he had three good chances to quit. I hope now that you'll carry away from this talk two lessons. First of all, I hope the women will become interested in football. That'll help, won't it? <laughs> and secondly, be generous with yourself. Just give, give, give. And as we give, we get. This is the gospel lesson. As we pour out ourselves, God gives us strength. Now, for example, we know... Let me tell you, when I came over here, I was dead tired. I didn't want to talk. I didn't feel like it. So I said to the good Lord, I'm tired now, and I'm going to talk on using strength. Spend yourself. Give me strength. Do I look tired? No. <laughs> Thank you. Now, everybody be generous, generous with self. I know that when I go now that Monsignor is going to talk about being generous in other ways. <laughs> but I mean being generous with yourself, your energy, your kindness to others, your charity, your helpfulness, because then you will be real Christians. This friend of mine that I told you who was in the prison for 14 years, when he got out of prison in Romania, he was walking along the street and found a boy and he said, do you believe in Christ? And the boy said, no. Why don't you? The little boy says, you think Christ is God, don't you? Well now, if Christ is God, if Jesus is God, he can do what God does. God made flowers. Flowers made other flowers. God made elephants. Elephants made other elephants. And nobody's ever given me anything. And if Jesus is God, then he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. But I've never found another Jesus. My father's an alcoholic. My mother takes in Washington to live. Nobody's ever given me a toy or a suit of clothes. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus is God because he never made any other Jesus. And Dr. Wormbrand said, but isn't your pastor? Well, no, he said he's not. He's not. When this pastor was told, I, he said, oh, that boy is silly. He wasn't silly. He was right. So if Jesus is God. He ought to be able to make other Jesuses. That's what you are. Other Jesuses. And you ought to so manifest him in your lives that as you move among others, they will say of you as the maidservant said of Peter, 
Thou hast been with Christ. Thank you, and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, our hour has come to a close, and uh, again, I want to thank you for joining me, and I would invite you to uh, bring a friend next time as we continue to uh, share some of the uh, classical recordings from the Venerable Archbishop Sheen uh, during the Second World War. And uh, please know that we will continue to pray for your many intentions. And again, we have been blessed to uh, set up a website uh, called bishopsheentoday.com. And there on the website is a prayer corner. And you can uh, send us your prayer request. We have a team of uh, volunteers that uh, pray each day for your intentions. And so uh, please know that when you visit bishopsheentoday.com, not only will you be able to watch hundreds of videos and listen to many recordings and uh, look at some books, but you'll be able to uh, give us your prayer intentions also. And so again, we invite you to visit our website, bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, I hope to see you next week, and until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.